morning, as you get settled in, I want to tell you about something new that we're going to try and see how it works. Um, I grew up in a very traditional church. And in the traditional church where I grew up, every time the pastor would step up, he or she would say these words. They would say, the peace of the Lord be with you all. You know that. All right. All right. Well, a number of you had, had that. Now, here's why I want to try this. I, I want to try it not just to add a, a new ritual. You know, I, I don't want to do that. In fact, if it feels like we just are going through the motions with that at any point, then we need to stop doing it for a while so that it doesn't just become a ritual. But this is really a wonderful thing when you stop and think about it. And it dates back even before the time of Jesus. Even before the time of Jesus, the Hebrew people, when they would greet one another, at least many of them would do this, they would say a certain word, it was shalom. And when they would say shalom, that would mean peace, but it even meant so much more than that. It's a word that we don't have any equivalent for it, and that's a whole other message another time. But, but one of the other things it meant is, may, it was a blessing. May you have more than you need for the challenges you face. How wonderful would it be every week to know at least once during the week, um, for you to know, for me to know, at least once during the week, someone was going to pray that into your life. Speak that in your life. May you have peace. Peace of God. May you have more than you need for the challenges you face. If everything is great, oh, may God give you peace because you're probably really busy. If, if things aren't great and there's chaos in your life, may God give you peace in the midst of the storms. So, I'll make you a deal. I will be sincere when I say the peace of the Lord be with you all. If you will be sincere when you say, Amen. all right, deal. Well, I'll, I'll be sincere even if you're not, but I, but I, I believe you will be. So, so we're going to try that. We're going to see, see how that works. And, and one of the reasons we need peace is because it's so elusive in our culture, isn't it? Most of the people I know, um, we don't live with a lot of peace um, in, in our lives. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing about gathering on, on, together as Christians. There is a sense in which God wants to just give that supernatural peace which passes all understanding. And many of us have experienced that before. When you shouldn't have peace, but God gives you peace. Everything is going crazy, but you have peace. There are times where, where God just does that. Supernaturally, despite circumstances, God gives you peace. But God works in another way too. And it shouldn't be an either or, it should be a both and. The other way God works is he gives us principles. And if we practice these principles, we're more likely to have more of what God wants for us. And there are principles when it comes to peace that, that God would have us to apply to our lives. And if we do what he says, we'll have more of what he promises, and that is peace. You know, God is the author of agriculture, among other things. And as the, Arthur, as the, easy for me to say, as the author of agriculture, he's the one who said, you reap what you sow. And there, just as a farmer wouldn't sow beans and then pray for corn... When it comes to peace, many of us, we live without margin, which is what we're going to start talking about for the next four weeks. We live without margin, and then we pray, God, give me more peace. We, we overcommit, we overextend, and then we pray, oh, God, help me, help me. So what we're going to look at for the next four weeks, in addition to us praying, saying, God, give you that supernatural peace, we're also going to give you some really practical teaching from God's Word. And as we apply these things, we're more likely to have more of God's peace. So let's jump right in. And I'd encourage you to write these things down. Um, you don't have to. There's nothing magical about that. God doesn't love you more if you do. But if, there is something about just taking that extra step of writing these things down that I encourage you to do. Um, every week we'll, we'll have pens. We'll have these, these note pages. But here's one of the things I encourage you to write down. And that is a, a brief definition of margin. And that is this. Margin is the amount available beyond what is necessary. 
if this is what you need and this is what you have, this much is the margin. Did I get that right? If this is what you need and this is what you have, is that better? I, this is, I, I need to practice, I guess. Um, if this is what you need and this is what you have, this is the margin. All right? And let me give you a couple of concrete examples. I think everyone's got it, but let me give, give one. Let me, let me use the example of parking spaces. You ever been to the Science Museum in Minnesota? Try to park in those little tiny spots, you know? Well, that, there's not much margin, especially if people are crowding it. Not much margin. Try to get that vehicle in there. But then every once in a while, you go to the place, they got margin. Maybe they have two spaces, you know, that you can kind of pull in. When, when, there's, when, there's, when there's enough space for a minivan and you have a Mini Cooper, there's margin. When there's enough space for an Escalade and you've got an Escort, there's margin. The opposite, not, not, not so much. The principle of margin, it applies to time. If you've got a job and, and it normally takes you on a normal day 20 minutes to get there, and you give yourself 30 minutes, you've given yourself margin. If you have a family income of $4,000 a month and you choose to live on $3,000 a month, you have margin in time or in your finances. And in this series, we're going to see in week four of this series, margin applies to temptation. If, if, you, if this thing, let's just say thing right here, is tempting to you, and you don't put yourself near that temptation, you give yourself a moral margin buffer, you're going to see that that's a good, good thing too. Wise people do that. Margin matters. It matters for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons it matters is that there's a relationship between margin and stress. There's a relationship between margin and stress. Let's 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 talk about that a little bit. Uh, this a couple weeks a couple weeks recently, I was down in San Diego, and I'd never been to San Diego before. And we went to this uh, this area, and it took us across this bridge, the San Diego Bridge. How many of you have ever been across that thing? Okay, huge, isn't it? It looks like you're going to go on this roller coaster, only bigger. They designed this thing because they have warships that come in and out of that harbor. So this bridge is tall enough. It is tall enough so a warship can go underneath it. This bridge is so tall that my father-in-law pointed this out as we were getting on the bridge. There was a sign. The sign said something to the effect of, if you're considering killing yourself by jumping off this bridge, here is a number you can call for counseling. And it was funny, some guy texted me during the message. Um, I didn't pick up. But he texted me during the message, and he sent me an email link of just recently, uh, some guy in the Navy came across somebody who was going to jump and talked him down. So, so this is the type of bridge we're talking about. It's that tall, all right? Now, was I stressed going across it? No, wasn't stressed at all because there was margin. We had a couple lanes on our side. The others had a couple lanes on their side. We had a guardrail separating us from, the, from falling into the abyss. And I think there was one in the middle separating traffic too. So we were all zipping along, I don't know, 50 miles an hour, whatever, both ways, no stress. What if you take away the margins on the San Diego Bridge? What if they would have designed this thing in such a way there was just enough room for one lane going this way, you got one inch, on this side, then you got one inch between you and the other lane. What if that's how they designed that bridge? And you're going down 50 miles an hour. Someone's coming at you. Now what does your stress level feel like? Unless you're an adrenaline junkie. That is just not a good situation, right? Right? Okay, so that's margin. Margin has a direct relationship with stress. And when it comes to time margin, there's an inverse relationship. And there's a place to write this in your notes. 
as your time margins decrease, your stress what? Increases. In, in, in life, when your time margin decreases, unless you are the most laid back of people, then as your time margin decreases, your stress increases. Let's go back to that example of work. Let's say you've got a job and it normally takes you 20 minutes to get there. And for whatever reason, this day you've got to be on time. Your job depends on you getting there on time and you're running late. And instead of 20 minutes, you've only got 15 minutes. So you go flying out of the house, you get in your car. And what's going to happen that day with the red lights? Every red light is going to be red. All right, which is red, red lights do. Every traffic signal is going to have a red light, all right? And so, you're so brilliant. What are you doing up there? All right. And so, so anyway, so that's the kind of, right? And what's going to happen at every red light? You know, you're going to be stressed. But what if you had given yourself margin? Same situation. You're still going to work. But if you gave yourself margin now, not stressed. And finances. We all know this, right? We're, I'm just telling you stuff you already know. When it comes to finances, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, or maybe even not that, and then unexpected bills start coming in, and, and you don't know where you're going to pay for them. Stressful, right? If you've got margin, if you have been able to set aside money every week, every paycheck, knowing that stuff's going to happen. Does life happen? Yeah, life happens. You get a lot of unexpected expenses, right? If you were able to do that, now, not as stressful. When the car breaks down, when the phone falls into the lake, you know, that kind of thing, right? Or off the San Diego Bridge. Okay, so that's finances. And, and, and with temptation, oh, did I already tell you to write down finance? Oh, Mike, already, Mike, you're a pro. You're a pro. All right, so if you haven't already got it, it's financial margin decreases, stress increases. Now, with, with moral margin, it's similar. It's similar. Um, just we have to change the wording a little bit here. It, it, your stress may increase, but I'd encourage you to write this down. As moral margin decreases, temptation increases. Let me say that again. As moral margin decreases, temptation increases. Let me illustrate this. In the back of our room, there's a computer. And I, I just, statistically, if we're anywhere near normal, a number of guys struggle with the temptation to view pornography online. Now, my guess is that nobody in this room is tempted to go back to that computer right now and log in to some naughty site, right? Nobody in this room is tempted to do that. But take a computer, put it in a situation where no one's watching, no one knows. Now, all of a sudden, that, that, that computer becomes a temptation, right? Wise people... Put margin in when it comes to temptation. They know what tempts them, and as best as they can, they put margin between themselves and the source of their temptation. Do you see how, how this works? Now, let's summarize real quickly our findings so far. More margin, we have less stress, we have less temptation. Sound good? All right, well, before we look at what the Bible prescribes, um, let's quickly highlight two more truths about margin. And I'd encourage you to write this one down as well. This, uh, here's, here's something about margin. As time, financial, and moral margins decrease, relational intimacy decreases too. The others had an inverse relationship. This has a direct relationship. When, when, when your margins decrease in time, finances, and in temptation, when they decrease, 
so does your relational intimacy, especially with the people that matter most, the relationships that matter most. Time, again, I, I, I feel like I'm just telling you so many things that you already know here today. When it comes to time, when you're in a hurry, what does that do with your relationships, right? For those of you who have kids and you're trying to get someplace and you're running late, are you more likely to snap at them when you're running late or when you've got lots of margin, right? You're running late. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we, all, we all have interruptions in our life. We all have interruptions. When do interruptions feel most like interruptions? When we're busy, when we're too busy, right? If, if it was the same situation, someone coming to you in need or, or wanting to talk, if, if you're not in a hurry, that's, that's one thing. When you're in a hurry, you're there physically, mentally. You might, might be some, someplace else. And when we're especially busy, this, it isn't just our relationship with other people that suffers. It's, it's our relationship with God. If you're statistically normal, even among those who identify themselves as Christians, and, and I certainly fit in this, this, this camp, when my schedule gets really, really busy, one of the things that I, I end up usually cutting out, either intentionally or not intentionally, is quality time with God. Focus time in His presence, focus time in His Word. So when, when time margins decrease, our relationship, you know, the quality of relationships, they also decrease as well. And that's true with time, it's also true with finances. When, when bills are coming in and, and you don't know how you're going to pay them, it, it affects our relationships, especially if one or both are overspending. If, if people are spending in ways that they should not be spending, that doesn't make the relationship better. It usually makes it, makes it worse. And what's true with stress, what's true with time, and our relationships is true with temptation. When, when people that you care about are, are consciously putting themselves in, in situations that you know are tempting, that, that's not a plus for the relationship. It's not a plus. Either there's great concern or there's great frustration, depending on the relationship. All right. Now, we, 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 we get these things, right? We get these things. We, we, we understand these things to be true. I don't think I've told you anything yet that you didn't already know. But what surprises me is, is this next statement, and there's a place to write this in your notes too. What surprises me about margin is that margin is surprisingly countercultural. Margin in our society, it, it is surprisingly countercultural. And, and why that's surprising is we all know we need it. And if you talked to somebody and, and you said, you know, I, I'm going to try to live my life with more margin, they'd say, good for you. And, and if you said, I'm going to try to... to, to, to um, to, to carve out more time for, for my family. They'd say, good for you. And, and if you said, I want to I spend less on, on things that aren't essential, they'd say, good for you. And, and, and if you said, I want to I put more distance between myself and tempting situations, they'd say, good for you. Until it affects them. And then they'd be mad at you when you say no to their thing. Or, or you say no to an activity that they think is okay. And we're going to see that as we open up our scriptures today. While we know that intuitively, while we know intuitively that marginless living is destructive to ourselves, our relationships, when you try to set healthy boundaries, when you try to start living with margin, you're going to make people mad. All right, enough talking about the Bible. Let's open up our Bibles. If you have them, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Start with verse 38. Now, as you turn there, or if you... Turn on your mobile device and, and look, up, uh, look up the scriptures. Um, I, I want to say something about this passage. 
this is the passage that I feel like we should be looking at today as we introduce this series. I almost didn't go with it because it's so familiar. I felt I got to pick something more obscure. Come on. You know, we use this passage for other things, but this, this passage says it so well and so succinctly. So even if it's a familiar passage, use this to, to reinforce this, this idea that God would have us to apply to our lives. All right. Uh, it's a story of, of a woman named Martha and Mary, her sister Mary and, uh, and an encounter they had with Jesus. Now, it says in verse 38, As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, remember that phrase, sat at the Lord's feet, and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. All right, I want to hit pause here. I want to talk about, uh, about this, this, this passage uh, a little bit. Um, Martha, for those of you who are not familiar with the story, I'm going to tell you a little bit of where it goes. Martha's about to get a reprimand from Jesus. The reason I hit pause is I want to explain that she's not getting reprimanded for doing something technically wrong. She's serving. She's serving. That is a good and a God-honoring thing. In fact, it's biblical. If you go into the scriptures, we have example after example after example of, of, of demonstrating extreme hospitality. Some of them, they went over the top. Some of them, it was just good and God-honoring. So the Bible itself says, be hospitable. Be hospitable. The Bible says that. Of Jesus, it is, it is written, the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. All right, that's said of Jesus. Romans 12, 7 goes this far. It says, if you've been given a gift of serving, then serve. So, is serving good? Yes. Is serving God-honoring? Yes. But Martha was distracted by this thing that was good and God-honoring. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. If you have your Bibles in the Bible, circle the word distracted. If you have your notes, circle the word distracted. If you can do it on your online thing and highlight it, highlight the word distracted. Because I think that's the point that's being made here. The point, and, and, I, and I think there's a lot of misleading teaching out there. The point is not, hey, everyone, sit, don't serve. You won't hear me preach that sermon. But that's the point here. I don't think the point is sit, don't serve. Because that is not a universal principle. There are some people, in fact, that need the opposite. There's not many, but I've met some of them. There are some people that need to get up from Jesus' feet, go do what he told them to do, knowing that he'll go with them. I've met some of those folks. Some of those folks who are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I've seen that. But, but let's be honest. Not a lot of those folks in here. we got a lot of doers in here. A lot of doers. We have a lot of us who, and I'd imagine it's most of us, if not even all of us, our issue is not we're spending too much time at Jesus' feet. For us, our issue is we're distracted. And as we're going to see later here, in part we're distracted because we're not spending enough time at Jesus' feet. So it's not a universal truth. It's not she's doing something bad. Serving is good. It's just that even something good can distract us from what might be the best. Um, concrete example of this. Uh, Michael Phelps, amazing athlete, uh, best swimmer in history, at least if you look at certain, certain, certain records. Imagine if Michael Phelps didn't focus just on swimming. 
Imagine if he got distracted. He's like, ooh, boxing looks cool. I'm going to make the, I'm going to be the first athlete to make the Olympic team in both boxing and swimming. Ooh, gymnastics. Look how they're doing that stuff. That looks cool. I'm going to be the first Olympic athlete to make it in swimming and boxing and gymnastics and track and field. Come on. That's, that's the glam event right there, 100 meters. I'm, I'm going to be the first person in one Olympics to win a gold medal in swimming and boxing and gymnastics and track and field. If he tried equally to do all of those good things, would he do well? Would he make an Olymp- the Olympic team in any of them? No. And so many of us, we're doing so many good things that we're distracted from the one thing, in our case, that God would have for us or the few things that God would have for us. Uh, here, I encourage you to write this in your notes if you've been, been taking them. If not, lock it into your head. Uh, creating margin around that which matters most keeps us from becoming distracted by destructive pressures and norms. Creating margin around that which matters most, and that's not going to be the same for all of us except the peace with God. Creating margin around that which matters most keeps us from becoming distracted by destructive pressures and norms. You know, Martha was doing something God-honoring. Martha was doing something good. Martha was doing something culturally accepted. She knew Jesus was a great teacher, and here he is coming to her house. She knew he was a miracle worker, and here he is coming to the house. If we were to look at an account that that we find of her in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we're going to find Martha, she knows he's the Christ. Very few people did. Peter did. Very few people knew she was that Jesus was the Christ. She knew. She proclaimed, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Martha knows this is the Son of God in her home. How much more should we go all out to be extravagantly hospitable to to Jesus? Of all the people she's ever served, of all the guests she's ever prepared for, shouldn't she give her absolute best to Jesus and his entourage? Wasn't that what was God honoring? What was that? What she was supposed to do And the Bible, as it does so many times, does this shocking twist. Shocking twist. Martha, what you're doing isn't the one thing you should be doing. Let me show you just how, if you're not familiar with this, let me show you just how precedent-setting this was. How precedent-setting it was that Mary was sitting rather than serving. Flip back. I've never, I never made this association before. One of the reasons it's good to meditate on passages, even familiar ones. You never saw us before. If we're, we're looking in Luke 10. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke 8. And let's look at another familiar story and, and see the, a, a connection here that maybe you all have, have seen before, but it's exciting to me. Um, let me give a condensed version rather than reading it for the sake of time. Uh, it says in Luke uh, chapter 8, starting with verse 27, we find this account. There was a man who had what? He had demons. Big deal. Okay. There's this man that has demons. For a long time, he wore no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon in the desert. On Jesus' command, the demons came out of the man, entered a herd of pigs. A herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And now there's this contrast. This is a literary contrast that's happening here. To, to show how much of a change happened when this guy encountered Jesus. 
When the herdsmen saw what happened to the pigs, they fled. They told it in the city and in the country, and people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone. And where was he positioned? He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was clothed and in his right mind. Now, in our culture, we can see two of the three contrasts very, very clearly. In our culture, no problem with seeing the guy was naked and now he has clothes. Everybody good with that contrast? Okay. The other contrast I think we can, we can see too, um, even if you never had experience with the demonic, demon-brained, right-minded. You see the contrast there? Okay. So we see this dramatic contrast, demon-brained, right-minded, naked, clothed. There is a dramatic contrast here between he was in the tombs. He was in the tombs. This is a place of uncleanliness. This is an outsider towards God. If you're doing that stuff, you don't come into God's presence if you're with the dead things because you're not supposed to touch the dead things. So you've got this ritual uncleanness, and now the contrast is he went from in the tombs to he's at the feet of Jesus. And why that's such a contrast is at the feet of Jesus at that time, in that place, that's where a disciple that's where a disciple was. And at that time, in that place, disciples of men were men. If they haven't already, the light bulb's starting to come off, go off, in regards to how significant this moment is. All the way along in the scriptures, women are affirmed. Here now, you have Jesus has a woman at his feet in the place of discipleship. And Martha wants her to come from that place and come dust. Martha's distracted. Is preparing your home a good thing? Yes. She was distracted by something good, something God-honoring. Let's continue with our, our text. Um, it continues in Luke 10. We'll go back to the story where, where, we, where we were. And this isn't a parable. This isn't whatever. This is a real account. Real account. So Martha is distracted with much serving. She went up to Jesus. She said, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to serve alone. And people will do that. We're going to comment that in a little bit. People, when you try doing the right thing, there are going to be people who pull the Jesus card on you. You know? Lord, don't you care that you left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious. You're troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Circle that in your notes, in your Bibles. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. It will not be taken from her. Remember earlier we said margin is countercultural in our culture? It was countercultural back then too. You know? Countercultural. And, 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 and what happened was Martha was distracted from seeing something historic. The Son of God put, saying a woman has a rightful place at my feet, in the place of a disciple. And instead of seeing that and affirming that and joining Mary in this historic moment at Jesus' feet, Martha wants Mary to help her with the fig newtons. You know, forget the figs. Put the figs down. Don't let the good distract you from the best. Don't get so busy that you get so distracted that you're not in touch with what God would have you to do, the priorities that God wanted. One thing is necessary above all else. One thing. My fellow busy brothers and sisters, the one thing that is important above all else is the sitting.
at Jesus' feet. Is it important to get up when he says go and go do it with his help? Yes. But first and foremost, the one thing that's needed as we try to set margin, as we try to set healthy boundaries, the most important piece is to sit at the feet of Jesus. Almost every great book on, in fact, I think all of them, all the great books on time management, they all say, put your first things first. Covey uses the analogy of, of big rocks. You've got a jar, put the big rocks in first, then the little rocks, then pour the sand. You'll fit more in that way. The biggest of the big rocks sit at the feet of Jesus. Where you have focused time in his presence, focused time in his word. And if you get serious about that, if you get serious about saying, God, I'm going to put you first, you are going to be in this place first, and then I'm going to work everything around that. If you start to do that, people are going to get mad at you. They're going to get mad at you. As you stop saying yes to everything that everyone else says, you should say yes to. As you stop spending money the way everyone else thinks, you should spend money. And as you put more boundaries in place, and, you, and, and the gang all wants to go to a certain movie, and you say, no, I, I shouldn't go to that. Or they say, we're all going to this place, and you say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Expect them to get mad at you. When you start treating the Sabbath like the Sabbath, and we're going to say more about that later uh, in the series, actually next week, going to make people mad. When you stop trying to be three places at every holiday, people are going to get mad. <laughs> Surprised I didn't get an amen on that one. <laughs> um, when you set limits to the number of activities that you sign up for or let your kids sign up for, people are going to get mad. When you don't buy gifts for every occasion, people are going to get mad. Expect it. And in fact, like I said, expect people to pull out the Jesus card. I, I get that one. In, in my job, I get that one. Every week, every week, I get, I get requests from, from folks who say, Hey, I've got this great ministry opportunity. Could you highlight it? Could you, could you give us some money? Could you send us some people? And, and, and as I try to say, well, here's our process. You can apply for that, and we will pray through it, and we'll look at it according to these criteria. Every so often, someone pulls out the Jesus card. Well, I thought you guys were a Bible church. Oh, I thought you guys cared about families. Oh, I thought this. I thought that. No. And maybe you guys had something like that happen before. Do we ever say no just to say no? No. We just say no so that we can say yes to things that we believe God would have us to say yes to. If you're serious about the margin principle, if you're serious about seeking God in a way where you're not distracted by too many good things, expect people to get mad. And maybe even pull out the Jesus card. And why that's so hard is because if you looked at those people and you said, you know we can't say yes to everything, right? They would say, yeah, we know that. And then when you say no to them, that's where it gets tough. That's where it gets tough. Well, one of the great things about doing what I believe the Bible says to do, about putting God first, saying, God, I'm going to protect my time with you in your presence, in your word, quality time with you. When you start doing that, then God is in a spot, and you're in a spot, I should say. You're in a spot where you're better able to hear what he would have you to do with the rest of your time. Did you catch that? Because I know I need that. Because I need God's wisdom, because this is too complex to do on my own. Of all the great causes, and there are a lot of great causes, which are the ones God's calling you to? There are a lot of great causes out there. We can't do them all. You can't do them all. Our church can't do them all. 
What is God calling you to of all these great causes? Poverty, injustice, all these things. What, what's God calling you to do? You try to do them all, you're like Michael Phelps. You won't be able to do any of them well. What's God calling you? I need God's wisdom for that. I need God's wisdom for that. When people are starving to death, people are being abused, all these things, they're all great. Okay, God, which one or which ones would you have me to get involved with? I need God's wisdom for that. Of all the great activities, there are so many great opportunities for you if you have kids, for your kids. There are so many. Which ones or which one would God have you get involved with? You know, what's your swimming? What's your boxing? What, what is it? What is it for you? I, I, I need God's wisdom with that. I need God's help because so many of them look so good. Of all the possible relationships, how much does God want you to devote to which ones? And in what season? There might be some seasons where you're supposed to hyper-focus on certain relationships. There's other seasons where you should be more spread evenly. I need wisdom from God because I don't know. I need help with that. What, here's one. What's the line between just good boundaries and being selfish? Confession, it's easier for me to say no than some people. My wife would be laughing right now out loud because she knows that. Um, but, you know, I need wisdom from God. When am I just saying no and when should I be saying yes? When is my margin too big? You know, Jesus responded to a lot of interruptions. I need wisdom from God on that. I think a lot of us also need wisdom on this. When is there a clear moral boundary that I shouldn't cross? And when am I supposed to go and be a light in a dark place? Because God might call some of us to go into very tempting, very dark situations so that we can make a difference. Okay, when is that? When is it the right time to go to that place? When is it not the right time to go to that place? And if I go to that place, what should I go with? This is where we need wisdom from God. And when it comes to jobs, I know a lot, there's going to be a lot of, we are going to work hard so that this doesn't happen, but I have a sense that the evil one's going to heap a lot of guilt on you in two weeks when we start talking about finances. A lot of you. Um, or, or maybe even next week we start talking about time. Because you're going to say, what do I do? I'm trying to be responsible. I'm trying to be in this job. Well, the job you're in might be killing you. You might be working 60 hours a week or more every week. You know it's killing you, but you need wisdom from God because what do I do? Do I leave this job? Is that responsible? If I'm supposed to transition, how? Some of us need that wisdom from God. Okay, what, what is honoring you? What is setting good boundaries? And when is it just foolish to tick off your boss, right? So we need wisdom from God and power from God. And that's one of the reasons why there's this double bonus, this double bonus of, of putting God first. Not only are you in obedience that way, but now God can speak to you more clearly about these other things. You're in a better position to not be distracted. You're in a be better position to, to listen. To listen. So everything that we're going to talk about the next three weeks hinges on what's going to happen you know, right now. <clears throat> And that is whether or not you're going to choose to say, God, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you first. So as we gather around the Lord's table, I'll ask the worship band to come on up. As we gather around the Lord's table today, we're going to do this differently than we normal do, normally do. In fact, if you're a visitor or a guest, guest among us, um, you're at an advantage because old habits are hard to break. So the rest of the people are going to be like, well, wait, where are the ushers? Today, no ushers for communion. 
No ushers for communion. Instead, what I'm going to ask you to do, we're going to put a passage up on the screens. Go ahead and put it up now, Mike. I'm going to put this passage on the screen, and rather than the prayers we normally pray, rather than the, the nice orderly way, which I think is good with, with ushers, what we're going to do instead is we're just going to say, if you're in, you're in. Come forward. Don't wait for your row to be dismissed. Don't wait for someone to point to you. Um, just come forward. And here's the invitation that, I, that, that, I, that we're extending to you. And these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. This is not an invitation we made up. This is not a paraphrase. These are the words of Jesus. Here's this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Sit at my feet. That's really, you could probably translate with, with somewhat accuracy. You could just change yoke to sit at my feet because the yoke, there was that type of meaning with it back then with rabbis. Take my yoke, sit at my feet and learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lonely in heart. You will find rest for what? The deepest rest. Deepest rest. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God wants to teach you. And so your invitation is not, I'm ready to come to Jesus. I'm never ready to come to Jesus. We're all messed up, right? But, but to say, I'm in. I want this. I'm responding to this. God, help me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to get these margins. I don't know how I'm going to transition from the craziness of my life. This is me right now speaking, okay? And maybe some of you can relate. I don't know how I'm going to do Sabbath yet. But next week, I'm teaching on it, okay? I, so I got to work with this, right? We, we are, our family, we're going paycheck to paycheck, way too much. Okay, that's got to end. So I'm in with, I'm with this to you guys. Okay, God, I need this. I need this. Today, that's your invitation. So does it, does it make sense? Um, so after I, I pray, we'll have the community servers come up, and we'll, we'll have them get into place, and then they'll be in place for two songs. Two of the three songs, they'll be in place. And if you're desiring to respond to this invitation of Christ, to say, come sit at my feet, put me first, and we'll figure this out. If you want to respond to that, then I encourage you to come forward. Make sense? All right, let's pray for this time. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us this invitation. Thank you, because we need this. We don't have your wisdom, and we confess that. We, we humbly come to you this morning. Humbly come. We say, Father, that we can't figure this out. We say that we've tried some of this, and we've failed. We, we say that, that we have let other things take your place as most important in our lives. So, Father, we come humble. We come confessing these things, and, and we come only because you've given us this wonderful invitation, this shocking invitation that not only would you allow Mary to be your disciple, Lord, you would allow us to be your disciple. Such things are too marvelous for us to fully comprehend, but we're going to take you at your word, we're going to come forward, and we're going to ask that you would help us now to discover what it means to sit at your feet and to make that a priority. So Holy Spirit, descend on this room, descend on this room, draw us to you, and then begin to teach us how we walk this out. May this be the beginning. May this be the beginning whole new life for us, where we can become more healthy, more centered, more grounded, where we are people who have peace down to our souls. All right, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm done talking. We pray that your spirit continues the conversation as we worship you in spirit and in truth, and as you speak directly to our hearts and minds as only you can. Open ourselves up to that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.